Hello, I am here with my friend Charlotte Nemanski to discuss her new paper, which speaks to three superbly interesting topics in development studies, the growing middle class, title deeds as a solution for urban housing, and galvanising the private sector. All three of these have often been suggested as new hopes, but Charlotte disagrees. Um, so my first question, Charlotte, is that in development studies, there's this increasing attention to the, middle uh, the, the private sector, and I want to know why isn't this enough to ensure decent housing for middle income groups in South African households? Okay, thanks very much for inviting me, Alice. I think it's important in answering this question to go back to the South African context where housing is hugely politicised. Some of that is connected to apartheid legacies where the majority of South Africans were not, did not have a right to own housing and did not have a right to live in urban areas. We fast forward to the post-apartheid era where the post-apartheid state has made it a fundamental part of its post-apartheid agenda mm -hmm. to provide housing as one of the main strategies for overcoming um, the injustices of the past. And 60% of the South African population are eligible for the state's provision of so-called free housing. Um, now, in that, what's, what's evolved in South Africa is what's often referred to as a housing gap between those who are eligible for the state's free housing, which is about 60% of the population, and those citizens who are able to access privately financed bank mortgaged housing, which is about 15% of the population. Mm -hmm. That leaves us with about a quarter of South African population who are in what's called this housing gap. They're not, they, they earn too much to be eligible for free mm -hmm. housing, but they don't earn enough for banks to want to give them um, a mortgage. And woven into that is in the South African history of banks being very reticent to lend, to provide mortgage finance in low-income areas and to have redlined low-income areas. At the same time, we see that gap households, although their incomes are within a certain bracket, which means that they're not eligible for low-income, for free housing, and they're not able to access mortgage financing, the credit commitments that these households have taken on mean that they're not able to access any sort of private sector um, finance packages at all, and the private sector is very reticent to provide mortgages. Equally, so the private sector, so banks aren't able to provide financial packages for these people. Mm -hmm. The state isn't willing or interested mm -hmm. in providing financial support. And at the same time, private developers have found it impossible to construct houses without set state support that um, middle income people could afford to buy. So there's a whole host of different issues coming in together here that demonstrate why this so-called kind of middle income group aren't able to, to be met by the private sector and they need additional state support. Right, thank you. Um, so what do you think the South African government should do differently in relation to housing? So the South African government has had a so-called kind of gap housing policy, but it's been incredibly mixed. Essentially, the state wants gap households to be independent from the state in meeting their housing needs. They don't. The, the South African state is already kind of committed to providing the housing needs mm. of 60% of the population. It doesn't want to provide sure. any more. Unfortunately, that's naive, altruistic hope gap households need additional support. So one of the things the state has been doing is encouraging the private sector, encouraging banks, encouraging developers through financial packages to provide housing support for gap households. But as my paper shows, that's been unsuccessful. My feeling is that we need a fundamental shift in the ways in which housing policy is understood in South Africa to stop thinking about different housing segments as the kind of low income, the mm. high income, the middle income, which is in essence just provided a segmented housing market where people aren't able to move up 
between these different sections, we need a fundamental shift in considering all housing together, looking at the housing market as a whole, recognising that there are multiple housing markets, how can they be connected, how can people be provided for, how can people's needs be met without trying to segment the market into these different sections. Right. So here, I guess, I want to ask the question about politics. Is that So we have this sort of squeeze middle, to use as another global term, is that are these South African neglected middle-income households collectively mobilising for reform? If not, why not? I mean, in the paper you suggest that the, this, this middle identity isn't a collective identity. There, there's no sense of class consciousness. But it's rather a negative individual sense of people being frustrated of neither being eligible for state support or being able to privately afford affluent lifestyles. Yeah. So what solution do they seek? What are their strategies given this this, this quagmire? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. There, there is a really strong politics of mobilisation in South Africa, but it's very much driven by the needs of the low income, not the middle income. And, and as you rightly say, that the so-called kind of gap identity, it's a negative identity. It's people who cannot access housing. So in that sense, it's not a positive um, identity around which to mobilise for class consciousness. Now, as part of my research, I interviewed a significant number of GAP households as well as private developers and, and, and housing policy um, individuals in, in, in the state. And what I found from interviewing GAP households is that the majority of them were incredibly busy, like you say, the squeeze middle, mm. going to work, coming back from work, just trying to survive. Yeah. That the thought of kind of um, mobilising, the thought of protesting, the thought of doing anything collectively was completely beyond their capacity. Um, most on an individual scale the people that I interviewed the two things that they really wanted was one to have tenure security to mm. feel that they had mm. a right to stay in the place mm. that they are now ideally they'd like to own their home but if they can't do that they want tenure security mm. that was the kind of very practical need but the bigger conceptual need was to not feel overlooked most of them felt completely marginalized they would say you know the state is providing this package for very poor people banks are interested in the very mm. wealthy we're stuck we're mm. in we're stuck in this middle nobody's interested in us and they feel overlooked and marginalized by the post-apartheid government. So that's one of the, the things that, that people want, but there seems to be a lack of capacity to mobilise around it. Mm. So two points that spring from that for me is, one, in the paper, you're reluctant to use the term middle class, which is really interesting because there's been a lot of literature about the African middle class, and but you're saying that's not appropriate because they don't have this class identity, and you're suggesting that mobilisation is often among the poorer groups, but not the middle middling households themselves. But what about the the fees must fall campaign? Isn't that a middle middling middle class campaign for higher education? I mean, those are middling households. Aren't yeah, they? absolutely. I mean, the, the fees must fall um, campaign is very very much driven, I would say, around issues to do with um, age identity right. rather than class identity. So it's a very youth driven. So there may be useful. Might there be a middle class identity among younger generations of South Africans? It's possible, but I think that younger generations aren't necessarily mobilising around mobilising around issues to do with housing. Right. So there, there but, but there is a big politics of mobilisation around housing in South Africa and services, but it's the focused poorest. on the low income. Mm. It's focused on informal sectors. It's focused on accessing the very very most basic needs, and the needs of those who are perhaps not considered to be the poorest are, over, are often overlooked and marginalised because they're not seen as the most worthy, the most needy. So I suppose speculating about the role of the middle class in pushing for good governance, I wonder, is there something structural about the current middle class, the current middle-aged middle class that are currently not mobilising collectively for housing, that maybe the younger generation that are collectively mobilising for middle class access to higher education, maybe in 10 years' time do you think there will be a shift? Or is there something particular about housing that would impede collective organisation? No I, think, no, I think it would be really interesting to see what happens in the last 10 years mm. because we've seen a big push towards youth citizenship and mm. youth civic yeah. mobilisation yeah. in South Africa. 
in a way that kind of echoes the anti-apartheid era right. from 20 years prior. And there had been kind of a loss of that student mobilisation um, since apartheid ended. So we've kind of seen an uprising again. It would be interesting to see whether or not in 10 years' time that plays out onto, onto the landscape of different issues, access to housing, access to services, access to kind of financial packages in a way that students aren't really campaigning for. So I think that there is the possibility of that. Mm. For so the I guess future. the next question is then thinking about South African politics as a whole, why might it be that these middle income households that were alive and, and active during the anti-apartheid struggle of the late 1980s and early 1990s, why might they be quiet now whereas the younger generation be more active and more vocal? No, I think the, the generation of, of middle, I, I, I'm really reticent to use the term middle class, the generation right, of, kind sure. of middle income people mm. that I interviewed were not active in the anti-apartheid, oh, they, right. they were in this kind of gap in between, that the, the older generation were active and the younger generation right. active again, but they seem to be in this period where see. they were coming of age um, right. or they had just come of age when apartheid ended or they were kind of in high so school. So they didn't have a historical ended. involvement They, they didn't in have the a historical involvement okay. in mobilisation and they had had hopes and expectations that the demise of apartheid would bring about material benefit for them in a way that hasn't materialised. And they feel a sense of loss, they feel that they've been excluded and marginalised, they feel that the hope that they thought would come mm. about hasn't been met. So it, I guess it's a gap in housing terms, but you could also argue that it's a gap in kind of mobilisation strategies mm. and citizenship and a sense of civic identity as well. And whether or not that gap is going to be filled in the next generation would be interesting to see. I think that's a really important contribution to the broad uh, debate about middle class mobilisation for uh, governance and democratic reform in the, in the sense that it might be mediated by generation and mediated by past experience and collective struggle. And I think we've seen that even in this country where student politics has mm. gone through a, a big dive right. in, in the UK, whereas if we went back to the 1980s, you saw a huge student protest yeah. that, that's, that, that's dropped off. Some of that could be around... Um, the fact that students are now so heavily indebted they don't have the capacity to mobilise. But in actual fact, we're starting to see an increase again in student mobilisation um, that we hadn't seen since the 1980s. But just, just to pose the counter-argument, I wonder if there is anything not about the generational history of the present generations, but something structural about being a middle-aged household in South Africa, middle-aged people in the sense that you've got kids in the sense, you know, the burden of responsibilities. And that is certainly something that came out in my mm. interviews, that people mm. were very busy going to work, looking after mm. their children, mm. looking after elderly parents as well, and feeling completely time-stretched that the, the capacity to mobilise was absent. But that's something that, I mean, that's not, a, I don't think that's a strictly significant no. phenomenon. So what I'd like to do, Charlotte, is to read your paper in 15 years' time about what happened to the next generation. Yeah, that would be interesting. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Charlotte. Thank it's you, It's been Alice. a real pleasure.